But if you would open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, then we're also going to be reading out of 2 Timothy chapter 1, just the introduction to both of these books. So if you have one and just mark the other one, we're going to turn between them. I'll read the text, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And similarly, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look at these two books that contribute so much to our understanding of your church and your rule over it, we pray that you would help us to see and understand how it speaks life into our daily activities, our actions, um, how we as your people ought to relate to your bride, the, the church, how we are to belong and to submit to your rule over it. Uh, and Lord, that you would uh, give us grace that we may walk in the instructions and uh, commands given to us in these letters. We pray this in your name. Amen. So 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, uh, both are written uh, what are typically called the pastoral epistles. That includes Titus as well, but we haven't covered Titus in depth yet. Um, so we're just going to be looking at 1 and 2 Timothy tonight. And we're, we're going to be looking at them at a little bit as a, a canon together. And we'll do the same thing when we finish all the way through Titus as well and look at all three of them together. Because all three of these contribute to our understanding of what is a New Testament church and how does a New Testament church function. Now, you, that shouldn't be a surprise to you because as we've been studying First and Second Timothy, we've been doing that under the series name of the healthy church. So we said at the beginning, First Timothy and Second Timothy and Titus, we're studying them because they're going to help us to understand what all is contained within a healthy church. What makes the church a healthy church? And so... Tonight, I just want to look, in some sense, in the rear view and at a high-level overview at some of those big lessons. And I think I'm trying to summarize that all under the banner that's kind of been on my mind as we've been uh, studying the book of Acts together as well, especially these next couple weeks as we'll be doing it, which is that Christ Jesus has this authority that is brought up and emphasized and re-emphasized. And what we see towards the end of Paul's life in the writing of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus is the clear boots-on-the-ground example of what it means for the church to live under the authority of Christ, live under the authority of God. And so in, in both of those introductory uh, uh, parts to the letter, in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, you'll notice it concludes with a line that says, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And similarly, in 2 Timothy, it says basically the same thing, from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And if we consider that when Paul calls Jesus Lord, that's not him adding a name to Jesus, that's him giving a title to Jesus. Uh, we should take seriously the lordship of Christ over his church and how that authority plays itself out. And so um, that, that sounds like a very high level uh, idea, but I think it plays out very practically in both 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy. 
And as we then, in the subsequent weeks, get into Titus, I hope you'll see that it plays out there as well. But let's just look at a couple of ways it plays out in 1st and 2nd Timothy. So in 1st Timothy, Paul talks about the Lordship of Christ, particularly in terms of Timothy's duty to cast out false teachers from the church and to instruct the church in right doctrine. That's kind of the, the big dynamic that's going on in 1st Timothy. And you see that right off the bat because uh, Paul writes in verse 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 1 that he urged Timothy uh, when he was going to Macedonia to remain in Ephesus so that you, that is Timothy, may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So Timothy's whole job for staying in Ephesus as a pastor is so that he could exhort other persons to not teach different doctrines. And as Paul goes on to explain what he means by this different doctrine, it becomes clear this is not just like um, what we would call a tertiary issue today or some, some opinion kind of dispute that's going on. Uh, these are people who've left what we would call sound orthodox theology and they've departed into all kinds of weird beliefs like they're debating about myths and, and genealogies. They've swerved from the truth. Um, what, what Paul says uh, is th that they devote themselves to these kinds of strange beliefs and, and practices. But what Timothy is supposed to do what Timothy's supposed to do is he's supposed to discharge his duty to essentially keep the church together under the, this barrage of false and uh, misleading instruction. And so how does Timothy do that? Well, the first uh, kind of corrective instruction Paul gives is a right view of what is the law of God. Now, the law of God, uh, as you, many of you have been reading the Bible reading plan, uh, is found in Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, the, the Ten Commandments are given. And Paul, almost verbatim, recapitulates all 10 of those commandments in his list from verse 8 all the way to verse 11 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. And that's because the church, if it's under the authority of God, is under the authority of God's law. The church is, still today, under the authority of God's law because God's law is God's rule for his people. And so what does that mean? Well, that means that just like in the Old Testament, you were to worship no other gods besides the one true God, so too in the New Testament, you worship no other gods besides the one true God. And so the church today has no right to go out into the public square and say, well, uh, if, you're, if you believe this, that, and the other thing, that's okay, God will welcome you. And we welcome all kinds of expression of worship, no matter what it looks like. Well, that would be to depart from the law of God. The church doesn't have the authority to do that because God has already spoken on this kind of an issue. Similarly, when we talk about the moral ethics that the church is to enforce and to instruct and to disciple its people in, uh, that's informed by the law of God, which we see uh, in, in those opening verses, has to do with how we uh, conduct ourselves in terms of um, our sexual morality. So he says uh, the sexually immoral is, is listed here among this command, um, and homosexuality is listed here as well. And so the church today, uh, especially in a Western culture, has no permission to go apart from God's rule and authority and declare differently than God did about things concerning the practice of sexual uh, keeping in the church. Uh, so that means that the church can neither in its public teaching or in its doctrinal application of that teaching in the life of the church tolerate or permit any kind of contrasting views to this regard. So just like a church can't from the pulpit say actually God's okay with homosexuality, the church can't practice on the ground any kind of tolerance of that as well. Because if the church says one thing from the pulpit and practice something different on the ground, uh, that church is in, in a very real sense compromised on this. And that becomes very clear because uh, 
what Paul does in both First and Second Timothy is he connects the theology of the church, what it believes, to how it practices that theology on the ground. So, for instance, if you get into chapter 2 of First Timothy, uh, the very real application is, okay, how do we worship in light of God's rule of the church? Well, we worship by praying for individuals. We raise our hands. We show up to worship dressed in appropriate attire. Uh, we do so because, because God is Lord of the church, and we are not the focus. He is the one who's being worshiped. Who is to lead this church that God has instituted? Chapter 3, uh, only qualified men should lead this church, and they're qualified according to God's standards of qualifications. And that's really important today because, again, the church uh, sometimes tries to be more gracious than God and takes men who are completely unqualified or have disqualified themselves from being able to lead in God's church. And they say, well, God has grace, and so therefore he's forgiven them and we can reinstitute them into the church. And of course, God has grace and people can belong to the church and be healed by the church. But that does not mean that those people can then lead in the church because God has given his qualifications for leaders within the church. And so um, adultery is not permitted. Um, drunkenness is not permitted. Um, the, the people who lead must be self-controlled. They must not be quarrelsome. The whole list is, is there in uh, 1 Timothy 3. It'll be repeated again in, in Titus. And what I'm getting at here is uh, kind of a core thing in 1 Timothy, and we'll see it again when we look at 2 Timothy in a moment, is again that Jesus is the authority of the church. God is the authority of the church. And so the church has no license to buck that authority and then go off in its own direction. And you see that practically played out in these opening chapters. And that's just as true for Timothy's unique job description as a pastor in the church. Well, what, what's Timothy supposed to do? Can he do whatever he wants in his practice? Of course not. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Paul says to Timothy, Do not neglect the gift which you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. You are to practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch upon yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Timothy's job before God is to save himself and his people, and he doesn't get to just make up what that should look like on the ground. That's really important because, again, today in the, in the modern world, the church has begun to believe that the way we reach a lost and dying world is by reinventing the way the church is done in a way that might be appeasing to a lost and dying world. So uh, when, when Paul exhorts Timothy to teach faithfully doctrine, uh, a church today might say, well, maybe we'll teach faithfully today some doctrine but not other doctrine because we don't want the world to be offended by that kind of doctrine because what we really want to do right is, is save the world. And what Paul says to Timothy is, if you want to save the world, if you want to save your hearers, teach faithfully the doctrine, practice it, immerse yourself in it, be absorbed by it. And I think that's a great wake-up call for us as a church, especially a young church living in a, an urban kind of context, a modern city context. Uh, we are pulled in every way and in every direction by our, uh, our circles, our, our careers, all, all these things to constantly give way towards compromise because we don't want to be offensive. We don't want to be um, off-putting towards people. We want them to know Christ, and that, I think that's a good impulse. But we, we ought to be careful that we're not trying to be more gracious than Christ in how we share him with, with the world. And so that, that instruction goes to Timothy. Chapter 5, that instruction, chapter 5 and 6, that instruction goes to the life of the church. How does it conduct itself at home uh, with its own members? How does it care for its widows? How does it care for uh, the elders that are in the church? How does it care for uh, those who are slaves and bondservants of the church? All of these relations are guarded and governed by Christ's authority over the church. 
why is it that the church must care for those who are at need within the church? Because God has said, you must care for those who are at need within the church. It's simple as that. The church is under God's authority. And as an extension of that, the church obeys by having a benevolence team or by obeying the command to love one another uh, in Christ. So that's uh, a very high and quick summary of uh, 1 Timothy. And you're going to see some of these same lessons repeated in 2 Timothy, and these will be fresher uh, on your mind. 2 Timothy is a little bit more uh, urgent. We kind of talked about this because of Paul's, it's kind of like Paul's last letter. That's something Max touched on and I touched on in the first week. This is kind of the last thing we probably have that Paul ever wrote. And so it carries this urgent character, but it carries essentially the same kind of message. Uh, what is Timothy supposed to do? Uh, what, is, what is Paul's final word to Timothy? His final word to Timothy is to preach faithfully. That's in 2 Timothy as well. Uh, you'll see that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Same thing, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14 and following. Timothy is to preach the word. 2 Timothy chapter 4, Timothy is to preach the word. Let that be a lesson to uh, us as a church and any church today who would say, we can do with worship and with church without preaching of the word. Of course, that is not, not possible. There's no way to gather in a public worship space as a church and rightly call yourself a church if the word of God will not be proclaimed in that space. This is exhorted twice to Timothy. And a church that's under the authority of God should hear and obey that. Now, we might think that that's not compelling, that people won't show up, and, uh, and that's okay. God has said this is how the church is to be run to preach the word. The word must be preached in the church. Similarly, uh, uh, it's not just doctrine and teaching, it's also practice on the ground. So Timothy has to conduct himself in a holy kind of way, but he also has to make sure that the false teaching is, is not preached in the public worship space, but it also has to make sure that it doesn't make its way into individual households as well. So he has both a, let's say, preacher duty to faithfully teach, but also a pastoral duty to go out into the homes of people and make sure that the false teachers aren't getting their way in there and teaching falsely and, and snatching up widows. And so he's supposed to guard his flock, let's say both in season and out of season. He's supposed to do it in the public worship space and outside of it. And I think that's extremely important today, again, because uh, we know that false teaching doesn't just come from what's proclaimed from a pulpit on Sunday. False teaching can come from what you hear in a podcast on Tuesday morning. It can come from what you read in an article on Wednesday afternoon. Uh, it can come from many sources. It can come from a conversation you have with somebody. False teaching is uh, abundant, and the, the more time seems to go on in the history of the world, the more ways we seem to repackage the same kind of false ideas. So the church today is supposed to guard its people from false teaching. And as Max mentioned last week, that means not being afraid to say, hey, these people are false teachers, and we should avoid them. And we shouldn't be afraid to do that because of certain uh, characterizations like politeness as being some kind of a ruling value for the church. And then I think the last thing I want to hit on for 2 Timothy in terms of the church being clearly under the authority of Christ um, is that if the church is under the authority of Christ, um, Timothy is supposed to preach, the church is supposed to practice, but ultimately they do all of those things governed by the very words of God himself, which is scripture. And this is coming from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's a verse that I briefly touched on when I hit on it in 2 Timothy chapter 3. But it says this, that all scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training. So those, those four characteristics are things that are all sufficient that scripture is complete for. 
Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for these things, to teach the church, to correct the church, to rebuke the church or reprove the church, and to train or to, uh, uh, let's say, training is not really a, a good way to think about this. Maybe um, a paideia, uh, you might have that concept of an ancient Groman uh, tutor, someone who would tutor a young child from the time they were a little boy up until the time of maturity. Um, training, uh, you can think about it like uh, it's homeschooling. It's homeschooling the church up from in- infancy all the way to maturity. And scripture does that. Scripture is our instructor. And so if we sit at a church, and I say we as, as Rua Church, if we are to sit under the authority of Christ, uh, we are to obey Christ's word, and we're to always, always, always do that on the foundation of what Christ has taught in his word. So that scripture is the ruling authority for God's people for all time. And I think that goes back to a very relevant application for scripture, which is that uh, today when we gather for worship, scripture is to be a central focus for what we do. And that would likely mean also preaching is a central focus for what we do. But we must also sing scripture when we gather for worship. And we must sing the truths of scripture and the very words of scripture itself if we have the ability to. Um, When we go out and we evangelize, when we share the gospel with people, when we do Bible studies together, when the church gathers in its homes and does family worship, when the church gathers in smaller groups or in Bible studies, what does it do? It obsesses itself with scripture. And what does scripture say? and how is scripture applied, and how is scripture obeyed, that's accountability groups. A church should embrace a life that is obsessed with and orbiting around the central gravitational pull of scripture. And if a a church has no central gravity like that, nothing else is actually strong enough to keep a church together. There's, There's no other substitute for the very word of God functioning as this kind of binding ingredient for the church. You can try to bind churches around other things, like sensationalism, or friendships, or um, hype, or, or whatever you want to call it. But scripture is the only thing that has this kind of lasting staying power to keep the church together. Now, many people would accuse scripture of being boring or outdated or uh, inaccessible to some people. And I think it's a fair judgment sometimes that if we love theology, we can sometimes be tempted to unfortunately assume that everyone also comes in with a love for theology. And that we know that that's not necessarily true. But that doesn't give us license to just kick scripture to the curb and try to make other things the focus or the draw for church. And so, uh, in summary, at least from what we see in 1st and 2nd Timothy, if we are a church, and if we are a people of God that are to sit under the authority of God, uh, we must hear the message of 1st and 2nd Timothy clearly. God has spoken, he has given us a rule for practice, and we as his people should simply submit to his authority and his wisdom in that. So with that, uh, there will probably be plenty of things we can discuss in both 1st and 2nd Timothy. Let me just close us with a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word, which is given to us as a life-giving breath of fresh air. Uh, It causes us to see things clearly, to see our sin clearly, our weakness, our frailty, and Lord, our need for a constant correction and a, uh, a source of truth outside of ourselves. Lord, we thank you that we don't just have uh, vague guesses about what you are like and how we are to worship you, but that you have clearly revealed yourself in your word and that you have made yourself knowable and understandable to us and accessible, that we can uh, know how we ought to pray, we can know how we ought to worship, we can know how we ought to follow after you. And we are not, we are not grasping at vain myths or endless genealogies, but we have a sure word which is provable and uh, and viable for life and for godliness. We thank you that you've given us your word as a sure foundation for your people. We pray this in Christ.
Christ's name. Amen.